So today we're going to look at Matthew 16, verses 21 to 26, and I'm going to go ahead and read that for us. Again, this is Matthew 16, verses 21 through 26, and then I'm going to read one verse in John. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it for you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And then John 20, verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the ears to hear your word, your truth, and would you give us the eyes to see your kingdom that you have already begun and you've asked us to be a part of ushering in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in this, in this moment that I have with you all this morning, God has put on my heart this, this idea from John 20, 21 that we just read, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the Father put Jesus on a, on a path, and although we're not on the same exact path as his followers, our paths follow the same trajectory as his. The same pattern as Jesus' path is the same path that we are called to walk. Yet here in America, as we just referenced a moment ago, it doesn't seem like we've followed that same path. We don't like losing. We don't like not getting our way. We don't like not being comfortable. We have fought the good fight far too often using man-made strategies, using fleshly strategies and plans rather than our minds setting on the things of God. You know, and I wonder, I'm hoping, if in this unique turning of the tide for Christianity in America, if we have, as the church, if we have an opportunity to wake up from this false reality that we've chosen. Could this be the moment where we see where we have, been, where we have believed the lies of this world and we turn to the truths and promises that we find in the scriptures and in the gospel? My prayer and my hope for the next generation of the American church is that the answer to these questions is yes, but we're just going to have to wait and see. We're going to see what happens over the next 10 to 20 years. You know, some of you may be aware of this already, but the decline of Christianity has already begun in America. Less and less people are attending church on Sundays. Less and less people are identifying as Christian. Many would think, as I would, right in the beginning of COVID, that's why. COVID, COVID squashed all of this. That's, that COVID is at fault. Let's just point the finger at that. And while COVID accelerated the trajectory, we can look back at research and just stats for the last 20-plus years to see that this day was coming. Roughly 80% of all Christians in America become Christian before they turn 18. This means adult conversions are not normal. Quick solution to this norm, let's get them before they turn 18. Let's get them to go to summer camp. Let's see if we can fix it that way. Well, if this was our strategy, it didn't work. Over the past 20 plus years, 75 to 80% of young people walk away from the church in their late teens and 20s. So think about the outcome of these numbers after 20 to 30 years. 
parents of adult children, where are your children at in all of this? Parents of young children or future children, what does that stir in you? I have three children, 10, 7, and 5. That is one of the deepest longings of my heart that they would know Christ as Lord and Savior. But the numbers tell me that two out of three, if not all three, are going to walk away from the faith. So where did we go wrong? What did we miss? What have we forgotten that has led us to this moment and towards our current future? And while there's many different factors, this could be a whole sermon series that Ben can do at some point when he wants to as to why we're here. Hypocrisy, Christians fighting one another rather than working together to build up the kingdom, insert whatever topic you want. I want to spend this morning unpacking, unpacking one factor that's interwoven, I believe, in all of this. Resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming, but we are all hardwired to make it happen sooner than it should and on our terms, not waiting on God's terms and his timing. We've all been swayed internally and externally to set our mind on the things and the ways of this, of, of this world and of man, just like Peter in Matthew 16. The path to be a follower of Jesus is not any path that man would make on his own. It's a path of suffering. It's a path of humiliation. It's the path of most resistance. It's the path of dying to yourself for another. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you thought something different, then we want to apologize to you wherever we've misrepresented Christianity, whatever it means to follow Jesus. There is a a freedom, there is a peace that only comes from following the path of Jesus. There is a new life, an eternal life, that is not under the power and authority of sin and death. And does your heart long for these things? Are you tired of searching? Are you tired of short-lived highs that leave you wanting and a little emptier than you were before? Jesus offers us these things if we would but follow him by faith and not by sight. So we're going to walk through this passage by dividing it up into two parts. First, we're going to look at setting our minds on the things of man. In what ways and why have we stopped following Jesus to take an easier path? So if you want to look at Matthew 16, uh, just before the passage that we read, Jesus calls Peter uh, Satan. So if you look at, I think it's Matthew, maybe 13 first. There's a very different positive interaction that Jesus and Peter have just before the passage that we read. In verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who are people claiming me to be? And they start responding with various people, Elijah, Moses, all these different people. But Jesus was more concerned with who do the disciples think Jesus is? C.S. Lewis says, if you come across Jesus, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's one of those three. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church with you, through you all. You're going to bring in the kingdom of heaven, and we're going to knock down the gates of hell. What do you think is going on through Peter and the disciples in this moment? What do you think they're feeling from Jesus? Well, this is a little bit speculative because we don't see it directly in this passage of Scripture, I imagine that Peter and the disciples are thinking, man, we get to be the ones to bring in the kingdom of heaven? We must be something. We must be special. 
You know, and I say this because in other places of Scripture, the disciples argue who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to have the best seats at the table in heaven next to Jesus? We're going to be the ones that bring down the Roman Empire, these fishermen. And here in our passage, when Jesus begins to reveal the plan of salvation, of his suffering and movement towards the cross, Peter scolds Jesus. Let me just think about that for a second. Peter scolds Jesus and tells him, this isn't going to happen. Not on my watch. You just told us your, bl- your grand plan to victory, and there's no way that suffering, there's no way that the cross can be a part of this plan. We have seen you calm the storms. We've seen you feed thousands. We've seen you have more leftovers than when you started. We've seen you give the blind sight. We've seen you raise the dead to life. You have the power to not suffer and to not die. How is this a part of your plan? And how does Jesus reply to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Does this seem a little harsh to anyone? Has anyone ever called you Satan? Parents don't answer that. (laughs) I cannot recall another time in Scripture where Jesus calls anyone else Satan. And Jesus bumped up against evil all the time. So why such a harsh reprimand? Peter was tempting Jesus to walk away from his purpose as the Christ that Peter just proclaimed Jesus to be. Peter had shifted his ideas even in this moment for salvation and imposed them on Jesus' path. Peter's not yet fully understood, or maybe in this moment he had just forgotten how dramatic the conflict between Jesus and this sinful world truly is. Even on this side of the cross and receiving the Holy Spirit, we don't fully grasp this conflict between God and Satan, between righteousness and sinfulness. You know, Ephesians 6, 12, I don't think I gave it... um, to Ben in time, but Ephesians 6.12 says this, if you want to pull it up. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. There is a cosmic spiritual war going on that is sometimes really hard for us to see with our eyes. This isn't the first time Jesus has been tempted to choose a different path, one that doesn't lead to the cross. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan three different times to set his mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in Matthew 4, he chose the path of the cross with Satan. Here in Matthew 16, Jesus again is choosing the path of the cross with Peter, who he calls Satan. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he chooses the path of the cross. You ever notice that whenever Jesus did something not of this world, he never puts the spotlight on himself. The disciples, us, we want our success to be seen. We want it to be noticed. We want man's approval and praise. And yet Jesus is different. What does he do when he turns water to wine? He spotlights the new husband, the bride, and the host. Raises the widow's son of Nain. Spotlights the widow the unnamed widow in that story. Healed the lame man that was lowered through the roof. He spotlights the friends who lowered him down. And then without many knowing, he retreats to pray and to rest. The opposite of what so many of us would do. 
You know, my mind instantly goes to, how can I, how can I monetize this moment? And just below the surface, this is what some of the things that I'm asking is, how can I get more prestige? How can I get more spotlight, more power, more influence from this moment? How can this help me feel, fill all the voids I have in my heart of belonging and acceptance? We long for feeling appreciated, to, feel, to be heard and to be seen. We want to rise to the things that give us a sense of, of wholeness and completion. And this is something we want in small ways throughout everyday life and interactions and in the big moments too. And why do we do this? Why does it seem that we're all hardwired this way? We do this with coworkers, friends, family, strangers. It doesn't matter who it is. And we do this because we don't believe, at the end of the day, we don't believe that we receive these things from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We choose to believe the voice of self, the voice of others, and the voice of our culture over the voice of our Father. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, tell us this, that we can walk following the course of this world, following Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're in Christ and this is not your current state, we can still be tempted in these ways. We can still hear that voice and listen to it and obey it. Now, I want to share an example of what this has looked like in my own life, a moment where I chose to put myself in the spotlight over another. Um, it is a rather embarrassing story. And if you are a mom, and if you have given birth, I'm going to ask you not to throw anything at me. Um, so we'll see who's close. My wife, Rachel, and I, we'd been married for just over three years when our first child, Carson, was born. Now, Rachel's water broke at like 2 a.m. in the morning, middle night, so we drive to the hospital. Sure enough, Carson's on his way. We get settled into the room, and we realize we forgot all the things. The, the bag that we had ready to go, forgot it. Right by the door, did not have it. Now, I want to blame being tired on this, but I don't think it's going to fly. Um, I suggested that, you know, I'll just run home. I'll get the bag. I'll be right back. Doctors and nurses say, we've got plenty of time She's not going to go into labor or anything. You've got, we've got hours before we're there. So I go forward with leaving my wife alone in a hospital, early stages of labor, going through something that she's never gone through before, that I mentioned she was alone. Never once did I think, you know, I can text my, fam- my family, my friends, David, who actually was, lived in the same apartment complex of me as a friend back there who came with me. Never once did I think I can just text any one of them. Yeah, you know, I wish I could say, that's it, that's, that's as bad as it gets, um, just beginning. I speed home, I get my bags, and out of the corner of my eye, I see it. My soft, cozy bed. <laughs> I start thinking, I'm tired. I got, a super, I got up super early this morning. I'm going to have some restless nights upcoming Doctor said, I have plenty of time. I'll just, I'll just, you know what, I'm just going to lay down. It's five minutes. Just give me five minutes to prepare myself. Hey, there's grace here, buddy. Grace is 
Two hours later, the phone rings. It's Rachel. Hey, is everything okay? I'm worried about you. Is everything all right? My wife, who I banded in delivery, is calling me to check up on me. I rush to the hospital after my two-hour power nap, and there's, I, even, I tell that story, my face is probably turning red. There is still this level of angst and guilt and just something that's still stuck in there as I recount this story. And it might seem like a silly story, but in this moment, I chose the voice of personal comfort and rest at the sacrifice, at the cost to my wife and mother and my children. I chose to rise rather than to die to self. Did you hear how many times I said I when I started justifying my actions? Do you think my wife felt, what do you think my wife felt in that moment when she realized what had happened? When she realized I didn't die in a car accident? (laughs) Do you think she felt appreciated, seen, and heard, and loved in this moment? One of the reasons we're trying to elevate ourselves constantly because our our church experience and our discipleship, if you grew up in the church as I did, has focused on the forgiveness of sins, and we have neglected the truth of being made more in the image of Christ and becoming his righteousness. You know, the Reformed Church, we do a great job of knowing what we shouldn't be, but we do a poor job of knowing what we should be, what we are becoming in and through Christ. You know, we can so easily get consumed with understanding sin and making sure we aren't those things, but we haven't pursued the beauty we are and are in the process of becoming. So often we make repentance primarily or only uh, the forgiveness of sins, the turning away from sin. But if we don't turn towards God in that, then we're just turning towards some man-made code or ethic system of our own. We're going to continue to miss the opportunity of becoming what we were always meant to be and making this world the kingdom it is becoming. You know, I hate admitting that something other than myself has any kind of power or sway or pull on me. Any of you identify with that? But I have been so bewitched by my own self, by my own internal faculties and the external forces around me. I'm far too easily setting my mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. I far too easily choose to enter the spotlight rather than following the path of Christ. So how can we set our minds on the things of God? How can we be proactive in looking for the path of Christ in our lives? How is my faith revealed as I respond when I hit those forks in the road? Just look back at Scripture with me. In Matthew, I think it's uh, 16, 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, John 20, 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How was Jesus sent? What path did he take that the Father set him on? It was the path of lowering himself. He left the throne room in heaven. He gave up his heavenly body for a baby's body. He left the place where everybody knew who he was, God's son, to become a a poor carpenter whom many wouldn't give a second glance at or remember his face. The Father sent Jesus down. The Father sent Jesus to die. For this was always the plan of salvation. And so that's 
how Jesus was sent, but how did Jesus endure this path? How does someone willingly and knowingly move in this trajectory? What kept him going on this path of dying and heading towards the cross? Jesus had set his mind on the things of God. And like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, Jesus came in weakness. He didn't come in power. His message was not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of God's grace, truth, and transformation. So that my faith, your faith, would not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Jesus' faith in that God is who he has always experienced him to be kept him on this path. Jesus kept going to and listening to his Father's voice over him rather than all the other voices around him. So he continued to move towards the cross rather than boasting in himself in all those moments where he could have. He moved towards death rather than placing himself in the spotlight. You see, faith replaces boasting and rising of the self. This is what should allow all of us to endure and keep going down this path. Can we say in Philippians 3, 8 through 11, can we say this passage with full confidence? I think it might be on the screen behind me. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. We could just stop there, but I'm going to keep going. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, prepping this uh, sermon this week, my wife asked me to come home early on Wednesday. One of our kids had a doctor's appointment and just makes things easier if, if dad can help. She then asked me at the last second, can you run to the grocery store? I said, sure. Man, I just ruined the story. I said what I said. But in that moment, I have a choice. Do I die to myself? My desire to get more of my work done on my schedule, on my plan? Or do I serve my wife and my kids? Can they be served? So the, the path to spotlight, to spotlight myself was say no to her, continue working on my sermon. This would allow me to finish prepping on my timeline so I don't have all these anxieties and all these worries start swirling inside of me. But the path to spotlight my family was to say yes, walk away from work, and love her well, love my kids well. And let's rely on the power of God to do things rather than my own man-made power, which is very minimal. I'm guessing that many of you have been in similar situations before. Going to another example, have you ever been in a meeting conversation. It could be, could be work-related or personal. doesn't matter. You share an idea. doesn't really get any traction. No one really likes it. No one says anything, and it just kind of dies there. A month later, someone else says the same exact thing. Same exact thing. That was your idea a month ago, and everyone loves the idea. This person gets praised. They get all this, the accolades in that moment, and so what do you do in that situation? Do you speak up so people know, hey, I, I brought this up a, a month ago, and no one liked it? Why, what changed? Or do you rest in your faith? Do you find your identity in Christ, who he says you are, his worth over you? Paul Miller wrote that faith undermines our need to boast, to constantly defend and display ourselves. It kills the boast. It kills, in principle, a touchy, defensive spirit. 
Notice how the gospel can reshape our feelings. We want to defend ourselves because I'm feeling unappreciated or unheard or unseen, all of which are real feelings in a situation. But they don't control me and they don't define me. The gospel connects me to Jesus, who was the ultimate one who felt unappreciated, unheard, and unseen. And in that connection with Jesus, we can find peace. We can calm all those anxieties swirling inside of us. Remember earlier when I referenced some of those moments where Jesus could have put himself in the spotlight, but he never did. He always put someone else in the spotlight. You know, there, there was one moment in Jesus' life where he finally steps into the spotlight. It was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. Jesus is spending time in prayer, as many of you know. And do you remember what he prays? Father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. But if this is your will, then it be done. Shortly after, he prays again, Father, if there's no other way salvation can happen, I will follow your will, but I don't want to. He prayed similarly one more time before the sound of soldiers could be heard approaching. It was in this moment where Jesus had the choice to enter the spotlight or exit stage left. In this moment, Jesus could have stayed in the darkness, exited stage left, gone out the back exit. You know, I somewhat imagine him hearing Peter's voice say, this should never happen to you. He hears Satan's voice from earlier in the wilderness saying, if you would just kneel to me, then I will make the entire earth bow to you. But Jesus resisted these voices, and instead, Jesus puts himself in the spotlight to be betrayed, arrested unjustly, and headed toward the cross. Jesus has set his mind on the things of God, which empowered him to continually lower himself, continually die to himself until ultimately he died on the cross. Why? Why did he endure this path? Why did he endure the cross? To be faithful to his father because of his father's love for him. He believed in his father's goodness. He believed in his father's justice. He believed in his father's plan for salvation. And because he believed that you were worth dying for. You know, and I wonder if Peter missed it. And I want to guess yes, just because he wasn't waiting at the tomb on day three. And we miss it all the time too. But in Matthew 16, 21, he tells us, after Jesus describes his suffering, he tells his disciples that on the third day be raised. Resurrection was part of the plan, but it wouldn't happen when the disciples wanted it to happen or how if they wanted it to happen. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. In our minds, it doesn't make sense. Yet in this nonsensical plan, the power of God is in the spotlight as Jesus' three-day dead body begins to breathe. This first breath in the tomb was the forever declaration that death and sin no longer have any claim over you. Jesus instructs all of his followers for all time that entering God's kingdom by following him entails putting oneself at odds with the world with the values and goals of this sinful world. Living in a way so dramatically different from the unbelieving world, it can feel shameful. It can feel embarrassing because it seems so different 
so otherworldly than what's going on around us. The resurrection that is coming for us is that we finally get to be what God has always intended us to be. No more sadness, no more pain, no more despair, loneliness. It's all gone. You and I will be known to the depths of our beings, and there's going to be no, no shame and no sin. You and I will be forever wanted and embraced by God the Father and one another. And then we get to, then we get to play a significant role in making this earth everything that it was intended to be in Genesis 2. We get to be the ones to make this place the kingdom of heaven. That's what we get to look forward to and be a part of if we set our minds on the things of God. And while we won't receive it fully on this side of Jesus' return, we do get glimpses and samples of it as we endure and persevere together. We get it even today. We get to experience these in in our relationships with one another. Not fully again, but you see those in those moments in your relationships with one another. And as we begin even now to make this earth look more like the kingdom of heaven. The followers of Jesus have chosen the path of true life that leads to lasting joy. We can experience the joy of the gospel even now as we live with the insurance of God's constant presence with us, his eternal care over us, and his plans for our ultimate good. Let's pray. Father, I am just in awe and wonder of Jesus. That over and over again in his life and in his earthly ministry, he had so many times where he could have made much of himself. And instead, he chose to make much of someone else. Because he was staying true to your plan, he was staying true to your will, and trusting your goodness and trusting your voice over him. Father, would you quiet and silence all of those voices, all those whispers that we all hear within us and around us. Father, I have brothers and sisters in this room who are hearing this voice that you're not good enough. You're too dirty. God can't love you for what you have done. And Father, for those of us who are hearing that voice this morning, would you quiet those voices and would you let us hear your voice over us? Would you let us hear the voice of you saying, I have closed you with my son's righteousness. I look at you and I see his perfection. I don't see any of those things that those whispers and lies are telling you. Father, for those of us who are in this room and we, we are looking around and we hear the whisper of, look at all these things you can have. Look at what you can be. Look what you can do. Father, would you let us hear your voice saying, I have called you to something so much greater. I have called you to my kingdom and into my family and I need you to play a very big role in what I am doing. Father, would all of us, would we hear your voice in this moment say, this is my son, this is my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. For you always have a smile on your face when you look over us and when you think about us. Father, we're just in awe that because of of Jesus and what he has done, because he made the, the spotlight, his spotlight moment in his life, the cross, you can say these things over us. So, Father, would we rest in this? Would we find joy in this? Would we find peace in this? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.